Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you feel when you are on tour that there is a kind of a, a national culture affects the way that people respond to that basic premise, the, the optimism? Is there a sort of a pessimism bias in Britain that I intuitively feel there is? Well, the most, the world's most pessimistic country is France. Uh, but, <laughs> Famously. Uh, but, uh, and literally, according to yeah. polling data. I, and I don't consider the, the message of, of my books, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature or Enlightenment Now, to be optimism so much as a data-driven rather than episode-driven view of history of the current moment. And uh, I plot graphs showing that indicators of human well-being have improved. I don't consider that optimism. Most people are just ignorant of those facts, and I'm trying to present them with them. So the fact that most people just don't know that that uh, wars have declined in, in frequency and severity, uh, when, when they hear it, they say, oh, isn't it nice? You're an optimist. But it's not that I'm an optimist. It's like you were, you're, you're wrong about your conception of which way history is going. Presumably, culture plays a part, though, in in people's resistance to taking on board the evidence once you've once you've presented yeah, it. Yeah, although it's, oh, I yeah. think the national cultures are. F- f- um, this might even be relevant to the topic of your podcast. Yeah. Are, are, are less salient than the political cultures. The right left contrast just overwhelms the the British American contrast. We're, they, we globalized so much of culture, including politics. That the national differences, at least among. Uh, well, certainly among Anglo nations, and I also spend time in Canada because I'm originally Canadian. But more generally, the the, uh, the Western democratic nations is uh, small. Now, of course, America has a slightly different political landscape. There's no socialist left party. Uh, our right tends to be more extreme than the the right of European uh, countries. But still, the contrasts are are utterly familiar. You are listening to Politics on the Couch live. Well, not quite live, but closer to live than anything we've done before, because for the first time after many episodes, locked down, remote, stuck in a cupboard, essentially, with an internet connection, we are now in a bona fide recording studio and with someone very worthy of the honour of being our first in-person, actual, analogue guest. I'm Raphael Baer, and I'm really 
Genuinely honoured to be joined by Stephen Pinker, Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, much lauded, awarded author, thinker, elucidator and champion of the Enlightenment, defender of reason against the many forces that subvert it, intentionally and otherwise. Now, I don't want to squander precious time on lavish introductions. I'll pack that all into the show notes. You can read about that. Uh, I must certainly mention the new book, Rationality, which which really is it's in the sweet spot of so many things we, we've talked about on this podcast before. Uh, there are so many problems that, that we've, we've talked about with various guests that I'm hoping we're going to get some help with now. Intellectual itches that I'm hoping Stephen Pinker will be able to scratch for us. Um, welcome. Thank you. I want to get straight to the heart of something then that, that has, has come up a lot on the podcast. And it, it goes a little bit to just what we were talking about a moment ago before we, we formally hit the record button, which is the sense that I get that there's a kind of an asymmetry in politics between the forces that work with the grain of a lot of the, the biases, uh, the emotional impulses, the things that you've described in this book and that others have written about that uh, that sort of work against rationality. So let's call that the sort of the, the populist proposition, people who are really good at gaming that side of politics, that seem to always be getting the edge over the people who are in the business of trying to assemble politics around evidence, uh, in, in engaging with complexity, embracing complexity. Now, I don't want to give away too many spoilers in the book, but but it does, towards the end, come up with you know, with, a, with quite a powerful and resonant assertion of, of, of reason's power to overcome prejudice and superstition and, and, and brute power. And yet, a lot of people listening to this podcast, I certainly get the impression that that's, that's a battle that's being fought uphill. And so just to sort of kick us off, I wonder if you sometimes just wish that the better angels of our nature, to, to use the phrase, just had, had more firepower. Is there a basic a lack of strategy on the kind of pro-evidence, pro-rational side that means it, it feels like a losing battle, even though you suggest in the book that it's not? Indeed, I think a major problem of, of people who believe in genuine progress, they don't necessarily call themselves progressives or vice versa, um, is to get people viscerally excited about the the, the genuinely um, progressive project of using knowledge and reason to improve people's lives. Now, a lot of those efforts on the ground take place in laboratories and in government uh, uh, bureaus. A lot of it is superficially pretty boring. It's planning, it's policy, it's technology. And it's not as exciting as uh, a revolutionary movement on, on the right or the left. And I, I joked at the end of Enlightenment Now, should we have rallies where young men in colored shirts salute giant posters of John Stuart Mill or uh, or or preachers roll their eyes back and, and thump copies of Spinoza's Ethics on, on the pulpit. Uh, it's, it's not the kind of movement that naturally leads to that kind of uh, enthusiasm-building measure. Uh, but maybe a good strategist uh, ought to think about ways of making knowledge-driven progress sexier, more exciting, something that gets people's blood pumping. Occasionally, a skilled politician can do it. John F. Kennedy made government somewhat romantic uh, during during this brief period. Obama uh, had that gift. Franklin Roosevelt. Is there a, is there a tension there between what what it seems to me you're talking about, which is about a kind of a methodology of doing politics. So we're going to engage with this problem. We're going to look for the solution. Government can be the answer if it marshals reason. Um, and uh, and an emotional goal, which uh, a, a sort of demagogic leader might 
appeal to and and I, I, it seems to me that a sort of a, a political project that says i'd love to have a political project that says you know we embrace the scientific method and we don't know what the answer is going to be but we're going to look at all the evidence and find it it seems to me that will always be outcompeted by a retail offer that says here, here is a charismatic leader yeah. who um, embodies the will of the people directly, and the people are pure and noble and heroic. Uh, so I, I don't know if we're that, – that's always a temptation. And I think it's crucial, though, to distinguish between a temptation and a need. That is, demagogues will be able to capitalize on our capability of venerating the strong leader of the tribe. But it doesn't mean that we all, at all times, are, are, are prisoners to, to that urge. It's not like you know, hunger or thirst or sex, where it just always needs to be slaked. Uh, it, it is a vulnerability. And, and indeed, the designers of modern democracy, such as the American framers and, 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 and founders, were conscious of the vulnerability of government to to charismatic um, uh, leaders and demagogues and trying to design the rules of the system so that they could only go so far. Now, during the presidency of Donald Trump, we, um, you, you can, there you can see the glass is half full or half empty, namely, were the safeguards strong enough to prevent someone with clearly with the temperament of a dictator from actually becoming a dictator, or did it come uh, perilously close? Timothy Snyder had this quite good line where he said, you know, it's Trump, the only way Trump, reason Trump wasn't a fascist is because he, he wasn't quite a fascist and actually wasn't sort of organized enough to, to fulfill what was actually the, the sort of the fascistic temperament. But that, in a sense, I think gets back to this question of, or, or you know, we, we are talking about the, the mechanisms that, that would keep the, the worst impulses in check. And you have representative democracy uh, as distinct from direct democracy, where you say, well, look, there's, there's there are mediating functions, there are institutions. Um, I think a lot of people looking at what happened in America uh, during the Trump presidency, I think a lot of people feel this way about Brexit in this country, is that when you can have a proposition that wins, that feels, for want of a better word, so irrational, so against the national interest, runs counter to so much of what they think you know, ought to have been a decision, actually that corrodes their faith in the democratic process. And I wonder to what extent that there's a sort of, there's a paradox there, which is that, you know, it would be, there are situations where it might be rational to not trust the people. And that's a, that's a frighteningly anti-democratic view, which I don't take, but you can see how people get led there. Oh, yes. Well, it lies at the very heart of democracy, and it's just a, a paradox or a tension that's built into democracy. Namely, you know, let's say I favor democracy. Let's say I also favor a particular policy. And let's say the 51% of the people don't favor that. Then uh, you know, I have to be prepared to concede, okay, we're going to do the wrong thing. If the wrong thing might be disastrous, if it might be destructive, aggressive, uh, pathological, even suicidal, then the question is, what do people who care about the fate of their country say about democracy? I think there has, there's probably a certain amount of genteel hypocrisy that has to, that, that, that's the, the solution. Namely, that we, that in practice, a lot of policy gets made by the experts, the people, you know, ideally, who have the interests of the populace uh, at heart, have studied the issue and implement the policies that make people safest and healthiest and, and happiest, which may not necessarily be the ones that people want. And maybe if they even knew how the policy, who was making the policy, they would be much, much angrier. But we have a sometimes an 
I think successful democracies have an equilibrium where we do cede power to experts under the fig leaf of uh, popular sovereignty. Now, see, that seems to me to get right to the heart, right to the character of the crisis uh, in in liberal democracy that I think we are going through at the moment. There is a, a sort of a patrician, paternalistic dimension to, to, to what you say there. Uh, and you can understand why quite effective populist movements are pushing back against that and saying, you know, the, the famous quote from uh, Michael Gove uh, in this country, you know, we've, I think we've all heard enough from experts, that that, that sense... That it is it is a sort of a legitimate and a rational democratic impulse for a majority of people to say if 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 the elite that you've just described it's a cognitive elite have have decided that something is the right course of action and they might be representing their own interests as distinct from the will of everyone else, then you do get into the situation where the institutions trust in the institutions breaks down well indeed and then you have people resisting vaccines because that's what the uh, intellectual elites endorse uh, and um, I, I think it's a central theme in in rationality uh, the, the book because the paradox that I try to address is how could one species uh, accomplish such magnificent feats of intellectual understanding, uncovering DNA and the Big Bang and plate tectonics and inventing vaccines and smartphones. And at the same time, we seem to be surrounded by so much uh, uh, codswall, flapdoodle, so, so fake news and conspiracy theories and medical quackery. Part of the answer is that the people whose opinions do align with the scientific consensus generally aren't more scientifically literate than the people who deny it. I mean, surveys have shown that, say, people who accept human-made climate change know, uh, you know diddly squat about atmospheric chemistry. And, and if you probe their understanding of climate change, it is uh, pa paper thin, if that. People will say, oh, it doesn't, global warming doesn't have something to do with plastic straws in the oceans and you know, the ozone hole and toxic waste dumps. They have a vague sense of green, uh, quite different from a, a uh, scientifically sophisticated understanding, but they trust they, they trust the experts. They trust the people in the white coats, and the people who deny climate change don't trust them. Uh, but all of us have to outsource a lot of our beliefs to expertise. The question is, what do the experts do to command that trust? So I think part of the I think one of the failings, of, you know, as myself a member of this uh, this establishment, this priesthood. Uh, I think that we should do more to to safeguard our credibility in several ways, and I do think that that the uh, that Michael Gove response, which is you know, utterly bonkers, but on the other hand, where it comes from is the the fact that the experts brand themselves a kind of uh, secular priesthood and say, just l listen to us, we have the truth. That's a big mistake because. But, but in a sense, that the, their choices are limited when. The science gets very complicated now. I, you know, yes. having read read the book and read other things about about Bayes and and probability, and I'm married to a maths teacher. You know, I, I can understand this when I really apply myself hard to it, but I can't retain it a lot of the time. Once you get into kind of quantum mechanics, I'm prepared to believe it's true, right? But I've not, we, you know, we have, we have so no have, choice. So yeah. It's an act of faith. Yes. So in a sense. You know, I, I want to try and tease out that there's like a kernel of... The, the, then you've got the, the Michael Gove saying, well, uh, they're, they're, that's not my religion. Uh, I'm going to look at it, look to another religion. I, I think it's the... Uh, we certainly have to make um, choices under uncertainty about whom to trust. 
I wouldn't call it faith in the sense of, well, that's what my father believes, so that's what I'm going to believe. It ought to be earned in the sense, both in the sense of a track record. Well, you know, these really are the people who eliminated polio and measles and smallpox, so that earns them a certain amount of, of uh, credibility. And if they're willing to show their work. Now, granted, the actual uh, science in all of its complexity is not the kind of thing that you could say in, in a few seconds on the radio. Uh, on the other hand, some degree of uh, summarizing, clarifying the chain of evidence that leads you to your current beliefs, uh, I think, would help in in uh, reestablishing trust in, in um, science because it only deserves the trust to the extent that there is evidence behind the recommendations. Right, and the key to that, I suppose, is the, is the testable hypothesis, isn't it? You know, so and that, and that bridge slightly brings me back to this question of, of how representative democracy is supposed to work, which is that, you know, you, you choose a bunch of people uh, and they won the election and they say we're going to implement policy X, which will, you know, will burn all the fields because we don't need crops. And then if everyone starts to starve because there's no crops, then in theory, four years later, you go, well, let's replace them with people who propose policy Y, which is we plant you know, wheat in the fields. Um, and so you know, you, you, there's this sort of an element of patience is built in with representative democracy. You're sort of saying, we'll wait and see if it works. Uh, and what seems to be happening at the moment is mechanisms, both technological and political, that are really riding hard all the kind of cognitive biases that work against patients, the instant gratification. Yeah, indeed. Also, the, um, the, the very, because so many political convictions, both among politicians and, and uh, among the people, are not based on what policies prove to be most effective. That is, people don't approach politics the way they, well, at least scientists ought to approach science. Namely, we start out in a position of ignorance. We just don't know what policies are going to work. Let's try them. Let's see what happens. Let's be humble. Let's prepare to be, to, to have our minds changed by the evidence. It, it, politics tends to be more like um, you know, football, where there are uh, teams competing for uh, in a zero-sum uh, a contest for for power, and you do anything you can, including your belief system, to ratify and strengthen the the sacred values of your own coalition. And I think, by the way, there too, in going back to the question of what does or does not earn trust uh, among scientists, the habit of scientific societies <clears throat> to brand themselves as branches of the political left, I think, is a, is a, is a disaster. I think it, it helps explain why there is so much science denial and science resistance. It's not because people are ignoramuses. It's because they correctly uh, sense that most scientists are on the political left. And if they don't happen to be on the political left, they figure, well, they're, they're just arguing for – they're not even arguing for their side. They're just boosting their side. They're saying, hooray for the left. And you know, I say, hooray for the right. And so I'm going to blow them off. Yeah, it's absolutely tragic the way that you – know, I mean, there was certainly a period at the beginning of the pandemic. It was, it was very different in the US because you had President Trump. But in, in the UK, it felt for a moment as if suddenly – uh, evidence-based and graphs and mm -hmm. learning about log scales had sort of pushed the previous period of making stuff up and post-truth and sort of slightly... It's an Anthony Fauci became a, a folk hero. And yet very quickly the kind of the culture wars sort of fought back. Indeed. Um, and, you know, you used a really important word there just in your answer to the previous question. You talked about sacred values and there's a really interesting... Um, section in the book where you talk about uh, you uh, you quote Tetlock Philip Tetlock yes. uh, talking about um, taboo trade offs and the way that's just thinking certain difficult thoughts 
um, is is sort of morally taboo, which 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 shuts down a whole set of what would otherwise be rational arguments. And I think it's this is your quote rather than Tetlock, where you say, the art of political rhetoric is to hide, euphemise or reframe taboo trade-offs. Those uh, are my words, but it's Tetlock, Tetlock's yeah. idea. It's a, it's a great way of putting it because that, coming back to this, this point about the pandemic, right now at this moment, for example, we are in a situation where the disease is out there, the vaccines have a certain amount of efficacy, we can't lock everyone down indefinitely, so there's a conversation that has to be had at some level, which is how many dead people per day is okay. <laughs> that is exactly right. But you can't say it in those words. But that is the decision we face. We have no choice. No matter what we do, there, there will be dead people. Uh, and it's a question of what, what will produce the fewest and also what trade-off are we going to willing to make. And we always have to make those trade-offs, but it is a taboo trade-off in the sense that we uh, are talking about it, thinking about it is is perceived to be morally corrosive, uh, even though it, it is uh, unavoidable. So we can open up the economy. People can return to their lives at the cost of a certain number of elderly people succumbing to COVID. Uh, we, make, we make that trade-off no matter what we do, but actually bringing it out into the open and making it precise, how many dead people in exchange for going, going back to the, the, the cinema and, and football matches is something that is very uncomfortable to discuss. And going back then to your point about the, the perception often that sort of science has somehow become uh, a sort of set up its camp on the political left. And therefore, there are a lot of people on the right who are going to re- resist that. Is there a sense also where that scientific community, the people who, who whose self-image is that they are the very rational ones and are, are based in evidence, they don't recognise their own uh, sacred themes or their own taboos? They, oh, the, the, the attachment to rationality is it almost itself generates a taboo, which is they don't want to admit their own fallibility. Oh, absolutely. There is a very strong bias bias, which means everyone thinks that everyone else is biased, but that they, that they, they themselves are not. Uh, and again, that's why we need mechanisms such as in the political arena, checks and balances, debate, elections in the scientific arena, uh, peer review, open criticism, open debate, empirical testing, so that one person's delusions uh, and self-deceptions can't carry the day. They'll be exposed by someone else who might be equally self-deluded. But uh, when you have a community of self-deluded people, as long as they're not all self-deluded in the same way, <laughs> then one, one person can expose the fallacies in another's uh, um, statements. Right, because part of what politics is supposed to do, or democratic politics is supposed to do, is mediate between different interest groups. You know, so you can't have there's the sort of uh, Condorcet paradox, I think it is, mm-hmm. you know, where you know, a enough people prefer A to B, but also B to C, but also C to A. So there's no easy way to say that if we give everyone A, then we've satisfied the majority. You have to. You have political parties, and they represent different ideas, and they will all compete with each other. But at some point, therefore, you're going to, in a democracy, arrive at a compromise, um, which is reasonable, but not necessarily rational. And, and so that, does that make sense? I'm trying to get at this sense that you know, it, politics is also going to be the art of saying there is this element of ra- irrationality that will just will be OK with it. So, I mean, I was just discussing with the producer, actually, on the way up here, an example of this. Um, so we have a lot of faith schools in this country. Now, in the US, you have a separation of form, technically, theoretically, a separation of, of church and state. We don't in this country. Oh, I know. Well, I grew up in Canada, which right. uh, imported the British system. So I grew up right. in, in so religious if were, schools. If we were really in the business of advancing rationality, you know, you might say, can we get God the hell out of our schools? 
Um, but politically, that's just is such a nightmare and a can of worms. You just go, fine, have the schools. But that's you're allowing people who believe voodoo to indoctrinate children. Yes. How do we how do we work that compromise if you're a rationalist? Yes. So the thing that the power of rationality is that can it can always step back and consider applications of itself. Uh, it's recursive in, in the technical sense, and one could rationally have a discussion how much how many zones of irrationality ought we to tolerate in service of some other rational goal. So if if I decide uh, we live in a democracy, we inevitably will have uh, incompatible belief systems, but we all want to get along. In order to attain the goal of getting along, how much irrationality uh, in local groups ought we to tolerate? That's a perfectly rational question and answer. Uh, the irrationality is itself a – the human irrationality is a premise in the deduction uh, in service of the goal of you know, harmony or peace or whatever uh, the criteria of a functioning democracy are. But it's, it's not so much a compromise in rationality in that it is rationality that tells you uh, or that, that allows you to figure out how much irrationality to tolerate and where. Haven't you then presumed – the goal, you know, it, somewhere in the future, you're saying, well, we'll you know, you're sort of zooming out a certain distance to say, you know, I suppose you could say the goal is having a cohesive, happy society. Um, but then you still have a problem of how far are you going to zoom out? So, for example, you in the book, you, you talk about, and I agree entirely, uh, the, the essentially sort of fictitious nature of the nation as as it is understood by a lot of people. And this is, you know, Benedict Anderson, I think, called the, the imagined communities. You know, a lot of people have an idea of their nationality. That is essentially a historical story that's, that doesn't conform to, to the evidence. But a politician who said, you know, this, this nation you say is great doesn't really exist. Would not get elected. Another sacred value yeah. that it is taboo so, to challenge. But then you're at a at a crossroads. Going back, yeah, you know, what you said a moment ago about you know the the sort of having essentially an enlightened self interest awareness of what your rational goal is that makes says okay, we'll tolerate this amount of irrationality. But say with the, the defining the nation that you then get to a point where you're choosing between say two different migration policies one which has quite open borders one which is autarkic and says right foreigners out um in the interest of a cohesive society that takes you to let's have strict border policy that might be cruel and inhumane there might be other reasons why so it doesn't solve your problem of knowing what the goal is where in, in terms of then the calculation of how much irrationality to tolerate Indeed. So uh, uh, rationality always is in service of a goal. The goal itself is not subject to debate in the application of rationality toward that goal. Now, we can step back and say what goals are, are reasonable. And perhaps without even realizing it, we do share goals that ought to bring us to common ground. You know, there are there are goals that are, are almost universally shared. It's better for people to be, you know, alive than dead and healthy than sick and affluent than poor and educated than, than ignorant. Uh, above and beyond that, there may be some goals that, that are not shared, such as it's important to share the faith in a particular deity or the, the nobility of the nation conceived as some kind of uh, ethnostate. Uh, and... Uh, uh, indeed, when there are policies that hinge on clashing values, uh, uh, you know, they can they can be real conflict. And uh, one solution might just be to have a, a, an uneasy compromise, a kind of coexistence among incompatible viewpoints. Another is to try to uh, fo focus everyone's goals on the ones that we really do have, 
uh, hold in common. Uh, for example, one can make the case for immigration by saying, well, it makes us all uh, richer. And who doesn't want to be richer as opposed to poorer? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that particular example, people have tried that and it seems to fail. But, and I can't tell how much well, of indeed. the failure is because people simply don't believe it because there, there's so much force of emotional gravity behind the proposition that well, also taking depend- my jobs and driving it, my wages down, that even if yes. that's not true, it, it's, it's resonant. And it depends on some you know fairly abstruse economics as opposed to the intuitive economics kind of based on barter in which it's hard to grasp the idea that, that uh, immigration is actually good for the economy as opposed to taking away jobs. I mean, assume, assuming that it is, assuming the data bear that out, which is, they seem to do. But they, uh, ironically, in the United States, which where the political right uh, is aligned with libertarianism and with you know, kind of uh, uh, cold-hearted, rational economic analyses, then Donald Trump and populism came around and, and uh, disrupted that coalition that the libertarians who say open the borders, the, the immigration is a good thing, face the nationalists and the, uh, the, the kind of the ethno-populists who th- say immigra- immigrants are stealing our jobs. Well, it's interesting because that same coalition more or less came together over Brexit. You know, you had there was a sort of a a pretty libertarian Thatcherite free trading idea of Euroscepticism, but it would never would have crossed the electoral finish line first if it hadn't recruited a bunch of of broadly protectionist nationalist people who essentially just wanted to close the door to immigration. So, you know, they formed that coalition. But the purpose of that was power, essentially. It was kind of a political heist. It worked. It, well, I mean, it was also de- democracy. I mean, you, people will argue that the Russians meddled. And there's all sorts of ways you can say you know, it, they cheated. But broadly speaking, it was a democratic outcome, I think. And it sort of leads to a quite a difficult sort of, I think, um, moral problem uh, at the heart of, of you know, when uh, people use what might be irrational arguments to, to to achieve power, which is the one, it's described as a very famous scene in 1984, uh, you know, where it's posited that you know, if the party decides that two plus two equals yes, five, yes, indeed. then it is, you know, because it becomes absolutely, it's, it is rational to submit to the idea that two and two is five to function in that society. Um, is that a meaningful de- definition of rationality? Is there a kind of a might is right counterweight to what you and I have been talking about as rationality. This goes back to what I consider to be the definition of rationality, that it's the use of knowledge to attain a goal. Now, if the goal is not being imprisoned uh, or, or, or shot or sent to room 101 and have a, you know, a cage with, with, with rats that are going to uh, chew your eyes out. Which British politics hasn't quite got to yet, but it does sometimes <laughs> feel that way, especially when you look at Twitter. To, so to attain that goal, it can be rational to say, well, to, to, to stay out of room 101, if I have to say two plus two is five, to attain that goal, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Now, then one can question the goal uh, or the question, again, stepping back, recursively considering the systems of ration, of, of alleged or attempted rationality in place. Say, is that a rational way to run a society? Should we try to change the rules rationally so that is no longer a uh, goal that people have to have, or at least it's no longer a means of attaining that goal. That is, staying out of jail, you refrain from killing people as opposed to uh, averring that 2 plus 2 equals 5. So you can step back. So the answer to your question is, it is narrowly rational with respect to that goal, but it's irrational that the society should impose that, have that goal or that means to attain that goal. 
then in the in the business of of trying to sort of zooming out, trying to pull the camera further and further back to go, how do we achieve a, a clear-eyed understanding of what the what the ambition for the society is, such that we can then find the politics that will sell it to people so they'll vote for it because we still believe in democracy, right? Yeah. So that is, you know, so some of it, for example, going back to immigration, I mean, in the, in the United States, we had a head start on, on that and, and Canada too, in that part of the national identity was part of what it means to be an American is we are a melting pot, we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, the, uh, in their time, the, the, the German immigrants were demonized, but then Germans became Americans and then the, the Irish and the Poles and the Jews and the Italians. So this is, you know, as we now would say, part of America's DNA. Canada has the, the, the related uh, metaphor of the, the mosaic. We, we don't melt people together, but we have this beautiful mosaic. Everyone's a little piece, but it all coheres into a, a beautiful whole. I think that European countries have had to move to that model of national identity in order to make immigration not seem subversive, but actually consistent with the national character. But I think it's been, my sense is it's been more of an effort in, say, uh, Britain and France in Germany than it was in North America. Yes, it was certainly, I think it's, it, you get very different responses to that in different European countries. I think essentially that's, that there is a sort of a civic nationality idea um, that is more available, I think, in some European countries than others, which have the more sort of ethnic foundation. Well, the United States, at least in, in theory, the United States was kind of unprecedented in being a a political entity defined by a social contract rather than by an, a, an ethnic group, rather than by a nation in the classic state uh, sense of a uh, people with a culture and a language and a homeland. Now, also the, the United States, I think, because it was founded as an idea, it, you know, the revolutionary. You know, there was a lot of enlightenment. There's a lot Indeed. of democracy as well, but there was a, a lot of uh, <laughs> enlightenment. Yes. You know, in, in in the in the in the founding ideals. Uh, that I I don't know whether that makes for more kind of rigidity because you have this codified constitution and you have you then have created a whole new set of sacred values that you know so the right to bear arms is in the constitution you can't possibly change that uh, or well, you can although it's, it's laborious and in the minds uh, of certain some people you definitely you you, you, you ought not to yes change, you yeah. can but it won't happen yeah, yeah. Um, or is the is there more flexibility in, say, the European version, which has evolved of a nationality where, yes, some people will think, you know, to be British, you have to be white. But actually, what you've seen over time is the number of people who actually believe that is falling off a cliff, not least because so many people are intermarrying that it just it ceases to be empirically true indeed. that Britain is a white country. Yes, I indeed. And um, an interesting question is whether this is an inevitable transition, because... Uh, people have feet. They like to move around. We've got plane travel. We've got increasingly a, a global culture. We have students who want to study in other countries. We have the narrow economic arguments that open borders are beneficial to uh, economies. Um, pushing back against a kind of ancient tribalism. And will countries like Hungary and Poland that have rediscovered the joys of, of ethno-nationalism uh, be kind of mugged by reality? That is, as, say, their birth rates go down and they have no ready way of, of uh, replenishing the workforce, as uh, they become more stultified and uh, insular and provincial by failing to take advantage of the exchange of talent and ideas, will they be dragged into a more cosmopolitan conception of the uh, of the country. Yeah, now th th this really gets to 
uh, to, to the argument in in Better Angels of our of our nature, I think, uh, which is um, you, you chided me earlier before before we were properly <laughs> on air for, for accusing you of being an optimist because you, what you what you do, as you, you say, is, is present people with the data that demonstrates the, the strength of your argument, uh, and yet I think a lot of people uh, looking at at the, the argument then about the you know, irresistible march of civilization and and uh, sort of humanism and progress will feel that that in itself expressed a moment that is more questionable now that there has been a we're sort of at an inflection point now where you know okay let me put this a different way like when people see sort of Donald Trump can be elected as president of the United States you mentioned Poland Hungary you know, really undermining the foundations of the European project you could think, okay, well, there's been a turbulence on the road, and you know, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think in your book, you say that was the first thing politically you remember. You know, the 70s weren't great. You know, it could, it could be like that, but it could be summer 1914. It could be 1932. How do we know? Yes, <laughs> how, and, how yeah, do we zoom out? Yes, go, which one is it? Is it summer 1914, or is it like you know, spring? 1963. Yes. Uh, the answer is we don't know. But although there probably are better or worse ways of trying to answer that question, I write in uh, uh, Rationality about Philip Tetlock's uh, forecasting project, his good judgment project, and about super forecasters who do have a better track record than, than pundits and journalists and, and uh, political consultants in predicting the future, at least five or so years out. Not based on how easy it is to imagine one scenario or another, because human imagination is infinitely creative and we, we're, we're titillated by high drama, but by uh, a nerdier approach of counting the number of similar incidents in uh, recent history, in uh, looking at the factors that nudge that base rate up, up or down. Uh, and so that, that would be the way we ought to answer that question, uh, conceding at the outset that we won't know the answer. Just going back to a method that I don't endorse, namely imagination. I don't think there's an inevitable march of progress. It's all it's human agency. It's uh, it's exchange of ideas. Nonetheless, there are certain trends that do seem to be to have, uh, you know, for for want of a better term, a kind of historical momentum. Now, it's kind of a mystical notion what that is, but you know, country after country abolished slavery, and no country. Uh, has reintroduced it. Well, you know, France did in the 19th century, but the historical direction tends to be away from things like human sacrifice, slavery, uh, public torture executions, laws that uh, discriminate against women or ethnic minorities. Not perfectly. There are, are reversals. There are holdouts. But when you see over a span of decades, country after country moving in that direction, it does raise the question of, can we legitimately call this a historical trend? And if so, what propels it? Is it technology? Is it um, the movement of peoples? And I think in general, so let's say, here's a thought experiment. In, in, in 50 years, will Saudi Arabia be closer to Europe in its treatment of women or will Europe be closer to Saudi Arabia in its treatment of women? I think Saudi Arabia is going to be closer to Europe. Now, it may, I, I might be wrong. It's a, Tim Harford, I think, has this great concept of the the, the sort of fifty-year newspaper, mm-hmm. where if you only publish a newspaper every fifty um, years. You got that from John Galtung, oh, peace researcher. Oh, yes, right, but right. it's an excellent idea. Oh, yeah. Whoever whoever deserves credit for it, it is an excellent idea. Um, I got it from Tim's book. So Tim, okay. if you're listening, thanks for introducing me to someone else's concept. Um, the, the but yes, the, the, just for the listeners, uh, I, we might have mentioned this before, but the idea is that if you only publish a newspaper every fifty hundred years, the headlines would be things like you know infant mortality drastically slashed, poverty practically eliminated from large swathes of the earth you know it would be it would be good news um 
Now, you've said a number of things there, all of which I want to come back to. And so I'll try and sort of take them in order. And one on the, the because and I'm hoping these, these will now link neatly in a chain, but it might fail. Um, on the Tetlock super forecasting, that raises a really interesting question, which I don't think is in rationality. And, and it was the one thing probably where I thought, oh, I'd love to pursue this more. If... If, if sort of nerdy data-driven people are very good at calling these things and understanding these things, doesn't that open up the possibility of quite soon the technology will be better at it than the people? And then there's a, a threat to our conception of democracy there where we might be better off outsourcing a lot of political decisions to the machines. Yes. Well, we probably would be good, uh, better off outsourcing at least some of our, our background knowledge, our, our data, our uh, understanding of the world to, to machines in the sense that Machines really do outperform people, or at least I shouldn't even say machines. Uh, simple algebraic formulas that are kind, that are of a, kind that a high school student can write on a piece of paper often outperform the human expert. That's one of the most robust findings in psychology, sometimes called actuarial versus clinical judgment. Now, of, co of course, it, it ultimately always has to be humans who decide what is the goal. Uh, in uh, That is, what do we want those formulas or algorithms to tell us what values do we choose to maximize, what do we trade off against what. And that can't be done by an algorithm because it inherently is a, a question of values. But nonetheless, in answering the factual background behind it, namely, given that we all, say, share a goal of, of uh, increasing health, uh, what, what will accomplish it? And there, probably not exactly outsourcing, but certainly the use of the best data-driven analyses recruited to the purpose, some human purpose like increasing health, I think would be a better way to, to, uh, to, to run government agencies. But that still doesn't resolve the, the problem of elections then and human and sort of the, the, the unwisdom of the crowds turning Indeed, up in the ballot yes. box. So you, you, then you've, you, I accept there's something slightly recursive there as well about saying, well, then why can't we get the, the, the algorithm or why can't we get the, the AI to decide you know, within certain parameters that we've set it, what the goal should be, and then which of these policies would best satisfy that goal. And then you're well, quite quickly into a model where, okay, so at some level, you have a council of, of, of wise people um, who say, this is what you know, we, we want, you know, fewer infant deaths, or we want people to live longer. And then yeah, these are the options that would do it, and then let the computer decide, or at least give the robots a vote, because they're going to judge it better than stupid people. Well, maybe not give them a vote, because the vote has a, a moral content of who ought to decide and, and who are the ultimate beneficiaries or victims, which the robots would not be, whereas humans would be. And so there's a kind of moral argument that votes... Uh, in addition, or even, perhaps even separately from aggregating opinions, just represent interests. It's a way to make sure that whatever the policies are, they uh, the ultimate beneficiaries are are, are the people. But isn't there, in terms still, of, sorry, isn't there still a kind of a taboo trade-off going on here? There, where what you're saying is, if we want a good outcome, which would be a moral one, yes. more people live longer. A decision made by an AI ought to be weighed morally against the decision made made by a stupid person. There is indeed. There is a, that, that taboo trade-off. It may be that we want to implement some of it without talking about it too loudly. Although, of course, you know, to prevent it from becoming a you know, totalitarian autocracy, it's not as if it can be imposed and, and hidden from people. Uh, but it might be. It's, it's one of these cases where human social conventions, including taboos, uh, our, our social life, really runs on a certain degree of euphemism, uh, 
innuendo, indirectness, suggestion, tact, civility, where paradoxically, blurting things out, stating them in so many words, might itself have effects that we might uh, choose to mitigate. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's very interesting. That does lead neatly to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which we amazingly haven't got onto yet in this conversation, uh, which is social media and the function that that has where where nuance, tact, uh, irony, you know, filling in the gaps. Um, yeah, there, there's, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with um, the, the Ignatiev book about his failed attempt to get into politics, Canadian politics. Oh, sure. Well, as a Canadian, yeah. I, I, was, uh, uh, I found he, it of great interest. I yes. wish I had the quote, but he has a brilliant description of how the difference between normal conversation and going into politics where no one gives you the benefit of the doubt. You know, there's no available distinction between, you know, what you said and what you meant. You know, in this conversation, you, can, you know what I mean. It's not something you can say in politics because what you said is the only thing that matters. And, and, and social media seems to have attached itself to that mode of communication. There's no flex. Uh, and that seems to strip nuanced tact, civility away. Mm-hmm. And whereas in rationality, you're, I think you're quite generous to say, or not, maybe not generous to social media, but you, you sort of say it, it's, it's too glib to, to blame. Too yeah, much I'm not away. willing to jump on the bandwagon that blames every social problem over the last five to 10 years on social media. I think it's an empirical question and social media certainly do have uh, bear some of the, of the blame. And there, are, and there are systematic reasons. And this is, this is actually a, an opinion where I, I have softened since writing the book, partly under the influence of Jonathan Rausch's Constitution of Knowledge, which d- deals with overlapping problems to the ones I take up in rationality. Namely, what makes – instead of asking the question, what makes us irrational, let's say we start off with the default is that humans are, in many ways are irrational, at least when it comes to domains beyond their concrete physical day-to-day existence. Uh, but nonetheless, we've, we've managed to accomplish some amazing things. You know, liberal democracies work you know, reasonably well by the standards of human history compared to absolute monarchies and communist dictatorships and, and theocracies. Science works better than superstition. How do we accomplish this? And, and his argument, which I completely endorse, is that there are institutions and norms in certain arenas or clubs or societies that are designed to approach the truth despite human um, uh, cognitive weaknesses. They consist of things like peer review, fact-checking, editing, open debate, patience in evaluating a claim before endorsing or disseminating it, 
and the mechanisms that have been successful tend to have those procedures. Even new ones like Wikipedia, which is remarkably successful, but there is the overarching commitment to objectivity, neutrality, truth, and mechanisms where uh, for error correction. Now, social media are almost the antithesis of those regimes because it rewards instant dissemination without vetting or fact-checking. Reputations are made by number of shares and likes as opposed to a, uh, a track record of accuracy. He's right, and the conventional wisdom is right, that social media by its very design tends to militate against the slow, patient accumulation of, of uh, accurate truths. Nonetheless, I, I do resist the, the temptation to blame everything on social media because I think some of the, say, the political de developments, especially in the United States that we might deplore, empirically have much less to do with social media than with other media like AM talk radio and cable news. Yeah, and 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 I know I'm I'm inclined to to share the, the the sort of the balance in your view here which is that and as you say in the book you know rumor misinformation um witch hunting a lot of the behaviors that are that seem to be unpleasant on social media definitely predate social media uh, at the same time you know it, People often associate progress with with technology, and I think you yourself have made a distinction between something like sort of nuclear power, nuclear weapons. You know, yes. technology doesn't is there's no intrinsic morality in, in the way to, you, know, you can use a hammer to build a house. You can use a hammer to hit someone on the head. It doesn't exactly. There's no morality yeah. intrinsic to the tool. Um, um, I, I do worry that certainly some of the algorithmic design of um, social media or the way YouTube will sort of channel people towards the most radical iteration of a certain point of view is more in the nuclear weapons end of the spectrum. I'm not sure. I haven't kind of decided yet. I suspect not. Certainly the the idea that um, YouTube sends people down rabbit holes of radicalization t uh, turns out to be exaggerated, possibly because they have retuned the algorithms to prevent that. But apparently that's no longer true. That There was a, a kind of a momentary scare that that's what it was doing. And of course, there are rabbit holes in conventional media. That is, if you if you if you read the the Guardian or the Telegraph or uh, or in the United States the 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 Times or the Journal, um, you you'd probably be less exposed to opposing viewpoints than if you were a consumer of opinion on, on the internet, where it's just one click away. And right, and ultimately you you can't undo the knowledge. Quite a useful test normally to say you know if once you know something, once you have a piece of technology, would you? Would humanity choose to unknow it? And there yes, are many indeed. cases where where that would be the case. And and in I think it's in the Better Angels of Our Nature, but it might be in Enlightenment now. Uh, you, you make the, the and you've said already on this podcast the, about you know, spoken about the importance of literacy uh, as as a defining change in the in in the advance of civilization and humanity. It feels to me that that, that new digital sphere where you've empowered so many more people with, to dis, to publish and disseminate and share information. Is is a change so equivalent in scale to mm -hmm. the arrival of the printing press, and that, that what we're having having now in the democratic space and the, and the world of politics is is sort of akin to a reformation. I mean, it's a total reorganization of where we choose to find authority. So you know, fifteenth, sixteenth century Europe, you're going to have an argument about whether the Pope gets to decide everything, or you have Lutheranism that comes along and says, you know, actually, I've read the scriptures for myself. I've got my own view now. You, you went through some horrible 30 years war, family, <laughs> yes, right. baptism. Well, let's, not, let's not do that again. Yeah, let's not do that again. <laughs> right. But it feels to me that something 
at least, you know, yes, no, in I, a merciful I, proxy of the digital environment, no, something like that is happening. And, and indeed, not just with the invention of the printing press, but with the democratization of print in the 19th century, with um, the, the rise of mass literacy and technologies like the rotogravure press that allow you to mass produce newspapers at, at low cost. Uh, and it did lead to a uh, kind of carnival, a wild west of fake news and, and misinformation and propaganda and plagiarism and distortion. At that time, most news was fake news. And the, the, the profession of journalism had to police itself, I think, beginning in the early decades of the 20th century. And Jonathan Rauch writes about this, where the journalism schools were founded, codes of journalistic ethics were formulated. Uh, to, in order to clamp down on this uh, this uh, this chaotic uh, anarchic carnival of publication that was opened up by the technology before the institutions and norms could catch up, so it's possible. And you know, again, I'm not I'm not such an optimist. I'm going to say it's going to happen. Uh, the reason I identify it is that if there is that that path in the future, we ought to take it. So in terms of what we should be doing, it is. Developing the countermeasures, the, the the norms and institutions that reign the, in this new technology, so that it gives us more of the benefits and fewer of the harms. Okay. And rem remember that. Just going back to your your comment that this is a, a kind of mass democratization of opinion. It wasn't so long ago that we that people both on the right and the left looked forward to a not exactly a utopia, but a kind of freedom where uh, we would liberate ourselves from the oligopoly of a few media empires. Remember, my, my MIT colleague Noam Chomsky wrote a book on the manufacture of consent, that a few companies like the New York Times and the, the, the Wall Street Journal monopolized opinion so much that they could enforce a kind of co a corporate-friendly uh, ideology. Uh, there was the old cliche that freedom of the press goes to he who owns one, in which case democratizing opinion, everyone gets to publish on you know, Twitter or Facebook. That should just bring in a much better uh, public square, a much better marketplace of ideas. So it didn't work out that way exactly. I think well, we were... they, maybe there's a kind of reversion to the mean here, isn't there? There was that utopian moment, as you say, where a lot of a sort of a California libertarian idea of what the technology would do just happened historically to coincide with that sort of post-Cold War moment where there was a sort of, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an injustice uh, to sort of over-satirize the end of history thesis. That, you know, that, that, but but that, there was that mood around that we'd sort of achieved an equilibrium where liberal democracy was going to spread and therefore the technology would be harnessed to that. And now we're in the sort of, maybe we're just in the, the sort of moral and philosophical backlash against that where people are, are way too pessimistic about what mm -hmm. the technology is doing. And actually, it's interesting you talk about institutions. I, I, I agree that institutions and regulation, frankly, will need to address some of this stuff. But there's also, you need to develop new conventions and, yeah. and, and, and sort of social norms, you know, up at the basic level of you know, not having your phone in your hand all the time while you're also trying to have a conversation with someone else or not. Yes, having, exactly. not having a phone in the bedroom needs to be almost a superstition so that you yes. don't absorb, you know, but maybe... New you, etiquette. Of, yeah, uh, but etiquette and superstition are quite irrational things. So you need to sort of, as it were, nibble away at some slightly irrational behaviours to kind of rein in. Is that, is that fair? Uh, it is fair. I, you know, I, I would not... I, I would not um, frame it as a limitation of rationality, only because, again, rationality being recursive can always step back and say, well, how much are there 
areas in which we tolerate some degree of arbitrariness or irrationality in service of the, the, uh, a larger rational project. So in the case of conventions, for example, this relates to the discussion of game theory that I have in, in one of the chapters of rationality, where there can be a unintuitive rationality to utterly arbitrary choices simply to get people to coordinate. I mean, the, the simple example is, you know, what's the rational reason for driving on the right as opposed to the left? Well, there is none, except there is a rational reason for everyone to drive on the same side. And so there's a, a rationality not to the, the exact choice, but to making the choice. And indeed, for some forms of etiquette, politeness, uh, civility, it may be that that particular norm doesn't have any rhyme or reason, but it's really good that everyone obeys it. And in some sense, that's about throwing friction into the cognitive process so that you slow things down. And, you know, that's why you have, in the same way that you have sort of speed limits on the motorway, there's a good reason why you don't just let people go as fast as they can. Maybe with the flow of information, there is actually some merit to saying not everything all the time constantly indeed and that, that is benefit and and that is one of the built-in uh, uh, flaws in social media is that without friction it becomes very easy to disseminate nonsense quick reactions and the countermeasures that are only starting to come in like you know have gmail. you read that do you definitely want to retweet it you know <laughs> exactly you know, or like, gmail sorry, yeah. you know, there's a you know five second lag before uh, between hitting send and it actually going out so that if you have second thoughts you can well there's a they, they, in, they, in, in Sweden if you get caught drunk driving they have they can put a, a, a sort of an alcohol limiter on your car so you have to breathe into the thing. Uh, the car won't start if you've, mm -hmm. if you've just alcohol. Maybe you need that on your computer. So you literally <laughs> yeah, start, right. start to breathe into the laptop and say, no, you've been drinking. Don't send that. <laughs> um, we've talked about this recursive thing a lot, and I've been remiss in not really unpacking it for readers because it's described very well in the book. So maybe could you just express that point about post-truth, which strikes me as so interesting uh, in a way that will also, and now if I am right in thinking that's a good example of this point about recursion, Maybe unpack that for our listeners. Yeah, I'm, I uh, don't like the term post-truth, at least when it's applied to the entire era that we live in. We live in a post-truth society. First of all, that literally can't be true because if we, uh, uh, because if, if it were, it would contradict the idea that we're in a post-truth society. Like, is that statement true? Uh, well, yeah, of course it's true. We live in a post-truth society. Well, if you believe that it's true, then you're just contradicting the idea that truth no longer matters. It's also, I think, a corrosive term in that it concedes too much. Uh, and it could be, it has a bit of a self-fulfilling uh, air to it. As Keith Stanovich said in his book, The Bias That Divides Us, we really aren't living in a post-truth society. We're living in a my-side society, referring to the bias called the my-side bias in which uh, both sides of a a um, in a polarized society will believe anything that ratifies the, the sacred beliefs of their own coalition and demonizes the opposing coalition, and that that may be the bigger impediment to, to uh, rationality. But we alluded to the notion of recursion. Yeah, let's just unpack That's that. something that I, I, I imported from uh, my, my original uh, specialization, namely language, where and it in turn comes from mathematics. It's a, uh, a statement, a proposition, a formula that uh, an algorithm contains an example of itself. So, for example, if I say John thinks it'll rain, I can then also say Mary knows that John thinks it'll rain, and Lisa doubts that Mary uh, knows that John thinks that it will rain, and I suspect that Lisa doubts that, and I could 
take that sentence and always embed it in a larger sentence. Yeah, now, it's, the, it's the bedroom fast scenario where I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that you know that something is going to happen. Exactly. And language allows us to do that. And the reason that language allows us to do it is that we can entertain thoughts like that. We aren't restricted just to propositions, but we can have propositions about propositions and, and propositions about propositions about propositions. The relevance for rationality is that we can reason about examples of reasoning. We can say, uh, that sounds plausible, but it's actually a fallacy, or the claim that that's a fallacy is a fallacy. Uh, and that's, that's why rationality is, is different from almost any other, probably any other topic or subject or debate that it always has the last word in the sense that even if people claiming to be rational are proven to be mistaken, which often happens, and sometimes people say, well, doesn't that mean that we shouldn't, that rationality is no big deal? You, you can say you're rational and you can be wrong. So why should we venerate rationality? And the answer is, well, it's rationality that allows you to say that, <laughs> namely that by the standards of rationality, some human claiming to be rational is mistaken. So rationality can always step back and, and, and examine instances of itself to in turn point out possible flaws and improve the overall uh, scheme of reasoning. All right. So it's a North Star that we navigate by. The, uh, it's an aspiration. And as soon as you, you – you, the mistake perhaps some people make is thinking I, I can harness it and capture it and deploy it as a political tool, then you've already you, – you've sort of – you're, you've missed the target. You're, you're trying to, you're making a political argument. You're not actually applying, comes back to right where we started at the beginning of the conversation. There's a methodology, which is the aspiration. It's, it's not a policy in itself. Indeed, it's a way by which you evaluate policies. Uh, so it really is first and foremost, not to try to uh, you know, exaggerate the importance of my subject matter, but I really think rationality is special in the sense that as soon as you have a, a, a discussion about it or anything, that is, what, when you're trying to persuade, when you're trying to provide reasons, as opposed to, say, threatening someone to mouth a statement, like a, a, a kidnapper saying, you know, re read this statement or we'll, we'll blow your brains out. If you're not doing that, if you're saying, here's why you should believe it, here's why you ought to believe it, here's why I'm right and, and, and you're wrong, you're already committed to, to reason, to rationality. And we always are as long as we discuss anything about anything. Right. Well, since we've now, by pure good fortune, or maybe not, there's other forces at work, I'm now not sure anymore, um, <laughs> we've reasoned our way uh, back more or less to where we started, which is a, a great place to finish. Uh, but also regular listeners to this podcast will know, you know, I don't even need to finish on an optimistic note, as we like to do. I mean, so many of the past <laughs> episodes of podcasts have been something so gloomy. And actually, we, we, you know, the, the, the great thing about talking to you, Stephen, is that, that we sort of defied that even just through the best part of the conversation. And yet I, I will prevail on you to share with people listening to this podcast, perhaps who, who are still craving a sort of a practical application in their lives uh, that will enable them to, as it works, sort of uh, bottle the spirit of some of what we've discussed here and actually sort of apply that so they can feel a little bit more, I'm not going to say optimistic, just a little bit more positive uh, of navigating the world. And 
you know, I've read the book, so I'd say learning about Bayes' theorem is one of them, but that's quite a hard one. Is there an easier one than really studying Bayes' theorem and probability? Well, I try to make Bayes' theorem intuitive. because You it really do, is, but uh, a, for, for the duration of reading that chapter, you do, and then I wouldn't be able to unpack it <laughs> right. for you now. <laughs> right, indeed. Uh, well, it's that, that we all have the capacity to become more rational. We all are, are saddled with irrationalities because we're all humans, we're not angels, but we have collectively... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. They come up with ways of being more rational than any of us is likely to be individually. And we, we uh, are, are best off if we avail ourselves of those tools and institutions. Now, predictably, that has triggered in my mind about seven more questions I want to ask you. But you've been so generous with your time and I know you've got many more things to do and it's just the beginning of the day. So I'm going to... I'm going, to, I'm going to impose some bounded reason here. I'm going to say, <laughs> yes, right, that's it. We've, we've run out of, of time, even not conversation. So it uh, just leaves me to say, Stephen Pinker, thank you so much for joining us uh, and for being our first in-person analogue uh, humans in the studio guest. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I am honoured and grateful. Thank you. <laughs> 